Great to be with you this morning. So uh, this morning, I'd like you to ponder for a moment one of our famous Christmas carols, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, has an interesting history. The prolific hymn writer Charles Wesley penned those words uh, originally in 1739 but then the lyrics were purportedly rewritten by his friend, the famous evangelist, George Whitfield, in 1754, and again in 1782. So apparently, Whitfield saw the glory of God in these lyrics, but he felt that they had to be stated with the greatest precision. So this Christmas carol uh, really wasn't popular for about 100 years. You see, Wesley's words were sung to a somewhat gloomy melody. So you wouldn't want to sing gloomy Christmas carols, would you? That doesn't sound fun. So this particular Christmas carol needed to be rescued, and was rescued by the English composer William H. Cummings. He borrowed a choral melody from the famous composer Felix Mendelssohn, who's a great source to go to for beautiful music, and he adapted it. And thus we have this wonderful piece of music and poetry that we sing with so much joy today. Now to prepare you for the message, I'd like you to focus particularly on the second verse. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. So what do you think about when you sing, pleased as man with men to dwell? Jesus our Emmanuel, our God with us, right? What does that mean to you? Do you give it much thought? So I hope to provide you with some thoughts this morning that are going to help you think about it. And to do that, I'd like to focus on the implications of a single verse in the first chapter of John's Gospel. So turn in your Bible to John 114. It's page 886 if you're using one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you. Grab the outline, incarnate word, in your bulletin. And let me read from John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, we, before we get into our outline, reflect on those lyrics that I just read. The Old Testament anticipated the offspring of the woman that would come to save us. And he did indeed come. It was God veiled in flesh. And he was pleased to dwell on the earth. He fulfilled the promise that there would be a people who would live forever in God's presence. And it all started with a humble birth in a manger in Bethlehem. 
So our Christmas series has covered the divine word, the rejected word, the received word, and now this is our final uh, conclusion this morning, the incarnate word. And so we're going to focus on a couple points from John 1.14. One, Jesus came in the flesh. And two, his glory is seen in the gospel. And then the final point, we'll turn to 1 John and we'll cover three, the inescapable conclusion. Now, as we move forward, there's something I want you to remember. It's very important. Scripture is clear about this. Are you ready? No one has ever seen God. No one. Since that's true, then what is the incarnate word proclaiming to us? Let me be more specific. Can we know God? What is the answer? The answer is yes. We can know God. Why? Because Jesus Christ has made him known. Look ahead a few verses. See what John 1.18 tells us. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So the first point is that Jesus came in the flesh. But it's critical to know where he came from. He came from the Father's side. That's where he'd been from the beginning of time as God with the Father. You can't know the Father any better than that. But John says plainly and unmistakably in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. His point is that God came to earth in a human body. Christmas marks that point in human history. God with us in a new and more glorious way. The phrase John uses It literally means that Jesus pitched his tent or tabernacled with us. He was among us. Now, we've been studying Exodus over the last few weeks together, and John has been calling our attention to uh, the whole uh, idea that was presented in Exodus. And he calls our attention in verse 14, when he speaks this way to that whole episode. God met with Israel in his tabernacle, in the desert, but John emphasizes that God has come to live with his people in a yet more glorious and personal way than that. Jesus came to us in humility, Born as a baby. Isaiah 49.1 anticipated it. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. And Hebrews 10.5 describes how he would use that body to accomplish his mission on earth. It says, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Jesus came to dwell with us in an actual human body. 
and make note of it. Jesus coming in the flesh is essential to our hope as Christians. John thought so. He said, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That was 1 John 4, 2. And for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Those were deceivers, 2 John 1, 7. Now Jesus coming in the flesh means that he became a man. That's point A, to be made man for us. But what exactly, why exactly did God need to become a man? Why was that to our benefit? Simply stated, the world needed saving. world needed saving. John 3.17 tells us that God sent his son in order that the world might be saved through him. Man had forfeited his place in God's creation. Sin came into the world through Adam, spread to all humanity, and death reigned over the world, not man. But God remained committed to restoring humanity to the place he intended, despite human failure. God promised to destroy the seed of the serpent and defeat death. Yet for man to be redeemed, there was a specific way that had to be accomplished. Since sin had been brought into the world by a man, sin also had to be defeated by a man. So that man was the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3. He was God's own son, but he accomplished the saving work as a man. That's God's redemptive plan. Hebrews 2.14 explains it. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, meaning he became a man, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all, all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Thus, he became a man for us. Jesus Christ becoming a man helps us to know something very special and important about God. Please hear this. How much does God love the people that he created? How much? So much that he was willing to do for them what they could not do for themselves. So when his people failed, he remained faithful. How clear is that to us? Because Jesus became a man for us. How much better can we know God and his kind intentions towards us. So here's an illustration. You're familiar with this story about Henry V? One night before leading his troops into battle, he became concerned about his responsibility to God, if they were to die in defeat. 
So he dressed himself as a commoner. And he went out among his soldiers to talk with them. He wanted to hear, without being recognized, how they really felt about the situation. Now, imagine if you were one of those soldiers, right? Wouldn't you assume that the king was laying a trap for you, that he wanted to hear you say something bad about him, incognito? But the king's motivation for disguising himself was for their good. He took his leadership responsibility very seriously, and he did what he did for their benefit, though they didn't realize it. So he became like them, so that he might understand them and serve them for their good. How about us? Don't we assume things about God that aren't accurate? Don't we need Jesus as a man to help us know what God is really like? And recognize that Jesus became like us in all ways so they might serve us for our good. That includes point B, revealing God to us. So it was always God's purpose to reveal himself and his redemptive plan as one of us. Moses announced this. Moses himself was a great deliverer. But he told us that there would be a much greater deliverer sent from God. Deuteronomy 18.15 The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. That, of course, is Jesus. And why should we listen to him? Well, we're told a few verses later, God says, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak them he shall speak to them his pe- meaning his people all that i command him and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name i myself will require it of him now we can't cover everything that jesus did to reveal god to us that's impossible john tells us that himself john 21:25 he says Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. But I'd like to look specifically at how people reacted to Jesus, God himself dwelling among them in flesh as a man. And they're right there in your outline. So number one, consider how people reacted to what Jesus said. Following the famous Sermon on the Mount, hear how the people responded to Jesus. Matthew 7, 28, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching as one who had authority. Now, then when Jesus spoke in the synagogue, Luke 4, 22, it tells us that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And when he was teaching daily at the temple, Luke 19.47 tells us that the chief priests, scribes, and other men who were seeking to destroy Jesus couldn't do anything about it. Why? Because all the people were hanging on Jesus' words. Now that's a powerful speaker. 
And when these men wanted to arrest Jesus, they couldn't. Why? Because the officers they sent to make the arrest came back and answered, no one ever spoke like this man. John 7, 44. Then there was a woman at the well in the, at Samaria. Do you remember that woman? Jesus told her secret things about herself. She perceived that he was a prophet. In John 4.25, she said to Jesus, I know Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. But it wasn't just what Jesus said that stunned people. It was also, number two, what he did. For instance, in Mark 6, 2, it says, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him, and how are such mighty works done by his hands? You see, he'd lived among them, so they saw his works. He fed thousands with just a few loaves and fish. He walked on water. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He gave sight to the blind. He raised the dead. And he preached good news to the poor. People were shocked. But they couldn't comprehend him, who he was and what he was doing. For example, in the midst of a fierce storm in a boat, he commanded the wind and the waves to stop, and they did. And how did the disciples react? Luke 8.25 says, they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? And yet, even though his works were hard to comprehend, the people knew he was something special. That much was clear. He stood apart from everybody who'd ever come before him. So John 7.31 tells us that many of the people believed in him. They, the people, said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Most importantly, Jesus did what was good and right and perfect all the time. He had enemies that were trying to kill him, but he issued this challenge to them. He said, John 8, 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? Can you imagine saying that to anyone? How about to your family or to your friends or the people you work with, let alone people who are out trying to get you? And the reason Jesus could say this well, Peter tells us many years later, 1 Peter 2.22, it's because he, Jesus, committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Not only did Jesus speak wisdom and live a righteous life, but number three, he suffered well. And he suffered because he was righteous. Jesus' accusers had nothing on him, so they resorted to false charges. 
when they finally succeeded in bringing Jesus to Pilate, here was the response. Luke 23, 13, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Later, the thief on the cross next to Jesus said, this man has done nothing wrong. And the Roman centurion who watched Jesus' crucifixion praised God and said, certainly this man was innocent. So here's a question you might be asking. Why did Jesus have to suffer? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us, 2.10, for it was fitting that he, from whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Perfect through suffering. Here's a way to think about it. Have you ever heard the saying that you don't know someone until you've lived with them? Do you think that's true? I find that there's a lot of truth in it. But when I say that, don't we first think of examples where people irritate each other living together? Like the newly married couple that goes from long romantic looks to yelling at each other when they have to share a bathroom, right? Or best friends who basically have a strained or blown-up relationship because they have to start sharing responsibilities for the apartment. Less often, we think of situations where living with someone makes us appreciate them or love them all the more. Like when they give you first priority for the bathroom. Or... They faithfully pay the bills, or they make sure the kids are clothed and fed, or when they do more than their fair share. Close proximity can drive people apart, but it can also bring people together. It can bring animosity or affection. Then how about Jesus coming to live among us? There may be things he said or he did that irritate you. Whose fault is that? It's yours. Why? It's because of your sin. Jesus was like us, but without sin. So his perfect life exposes our sin. Now, what does that do to your relationship with Jesus? Because the presence of Jesus doesn't have to irritate you. Yes, there can be difficulties, but knowing him can bring lasting joy and peace. Why? Because you know that all his words are wisdom. You come to love his righteousness. And you develop a grateful appreciation for how he humbled himself and suffered for your sake. 
Don't you see? He had to be perfect so that he might be an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. Now, as we move forward, there's something I want you to remember. It's very important. Scripture is clear about this. Are you ready? No one has ever seen God. No one. Think about that. Since that is true, then what is the incarnate word proclaiming to us? Let me be more specific. Can we see God's glory? What is the answer? The answer is, It's complicated. Why? Because no man or woman can see God's face and live. Do you recall that story in Exodus 33? Moses was about as close to God as a man can get. So he asked to see God's glory and even says, please. But what does God tell him? God says, You cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. However, he did show him something. God placed Moses in the cleft of a rock and covered him with his hand. And then he passed by, and he removed the hand, and he let Moses see his back. So that brings us to point two. When he did this, what was God making Moses understand about his glory? What did God say about himself? He said this, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Where then is the emphasis? It's on the mercy and faithfulness of God. That's what Jesus represents, God's gracious love and devotion to his people. That's the good news, the gospel. So in this morning's passage, John is almost certainly pointing us to that episode from Exodus when he says, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now many people have claimed to have a vision of God and speak the truth, but what is the truth of the gospel? Point A. It's that truth is found in the life death and resurrection of one person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. Now, when John says that Jesus is the only son, in what sense can he say that? I mean, Adam is called God's son. Angels are sometimes referred to as God's sons. And believers are adopted as God's sons. So how is Jesus unique? Well, Jesus is the Father's best loved son. In that sense, he's God's one and only son. Because only he fulfilled God's law. Only he accomplished God's plan of salvation. So only in him can we receive the promises of God. F.F. Bruce comments on this. 
He says, the glory which shone in the incarnate word was glory such as a father bestows on his best-loved son. For example, Isaac was not Abraham's only son. Abraham had another son, Ishmael, by Sarah's servant. Abraham had other sons by another wife after Sarah died. I'm sure Abraham loved all his sons. But there was only one son who was miraculously born to him by Sarah. So in that sense, Isaac was his unique son, his best loved son. In the same manner, Jesus is the father's unique son. His best loved son for the salvation of humanity. John 3.16 says it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that is, his unique son, his beloved son, so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So how do we know for certain that Jesus is this unique son? How do we know that the Father has sent him? Though if the Father told us that himself, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17:5 recounts how a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, "This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him." But how can we actually know? Jesus was a man. Like us, there was a hiddenness about his glory while he was here on earth because he was a man. A fleshly body couldn't fully express it. How could this glory be demonstrated for all to see? The Father raised him from the dead. Peter says in Acts 2.32, this Jesus... God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Jesus was vindicated by the Father in his resurrection from the dead. This is proof that he's the one who receives all that the Father has promised. Can we see God's glory? Yes. We see it in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's a gospel of grace. John 1.17 tells us, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law condemns us as sinners. We're living under a death sentence. The penalty for that sin must be paid. Jesus told us that truth. But that's not all. It doesn't end there. God will be gracious to whom he will be gracious, and he'll show mercy to whom he will show mercy. Because of his righteous life, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for death, for sin, by his death on the cross. 
Therefore, the salvation he offers is a free gift to all those who will place their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. We receive this gift by God's grace, and all the glory goes to Jesus. So what will you do with that offer this morning? What's your response to God's grace? Do you receive? Do you receive the gospel message? Or do you ignore it because it offends the pride you have in your own accomplishments? Or does it irritate you because you don't like being told that you can't stand before a holy God on your own? Or do you simply just love your life of sin? Don't want to give it up. I plead with you to humble yourself before God so that you might receive grace through Jesus Christ. Now as we move forward, there's something I want you to remember. It's very important. Scripture is very clear about this. Are you ready? No one has ever seen God. No one. Think about that. Since that's true, then what is the incarnate word proclaiming to us? Let me be more specific. Can we come to the Father? Can we come to the Father? Jesus himself said no one has seen the Father ever, except he who is from God. Then how can we come to the Father if we can't see him? What is the answer? The answer is this. We can only come if the Father draws us. John 6, How does that happen? Here's how. The Father draws us to the God-man that he sent to us, Jesus Christ. Here's the final point. The inescapable conclusion. You must ask yourself these questions. What kind of a God draws to himself people who've been living in sinful rebellion against him? What kind of a God does that? What kind of a God pays the penalty that people could not pay to save them from his wrath and judgment? What kind of a God does that? Consider how amazingly devoted God is to his people and has been throughout all of history. Christmas is a time for remembering devotion. It gives us an opportunity to express devotion to the people we love. We do this by our commitment to be with them at Christmas and give them gifts. I think we all understand this kind of devotion in, in some measure, even as flawed human beings. So how devoted was God 
to the redemption of humanity. That he was willing to become human for our sake, to come down and to dwell among us and make us this free offer, this free, offer us this free gift, this gracious gift of salvation. I mean, this is God, right? King of kings becoming a humble servant and taking on flesh for us. What can we even compare to the incarnation of God? <laughs> I mean, I have a hard time stooping to take out the trash and clean up after the dog. How about you? The humility that God showed, that he demonstrated in taking on flesh for us and becoming a man is beyond comprehension. Can you imagine? Can you even imagine his devotion to his people? So what is your response? What's your response? We've considered God's devotion to his people. Now, how about your devotion to God? Consider that. John has a lot to say about that in his first epistle. So it's time to turn there now. 1 John chapter 1. It's page 1021 if you're using the Pew Bible. 1 John chapter 1. Now I'm asking you to look at your life in light of a few passages. First, consider your devotion to God by what you say. By what you say, do your words and life descriptions exalt Jesus Christ? Or do you care more about your own status and reputation? Truth and honesty in relationships is difficult, but it demonstrates devotion to God. Listen to what John tells us. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Second, consider your devotion to God by what you do. By what you do. Are you putting sin to death in your life by the power of Jesus Christ? Or do you care more about your own ease and comfort? Practicing righteousness in our daily living is difficult, but it demonstrates Devotion to God. Listen to what John tells us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. 
No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Third, consider your devotion to God by how you suffer. By how you suffer. Are you laying down your life and giving your all for the glory of Jesus Christ? Or do you care more, time, more for your own time, interests, and possessions? Making personal sacrifices and suffering for the glory and gospel of Jesus Christ is difficult, but it demonstrates devotion to God. Listen to what John tells us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So, if you compare your life to the life of Jesus, don't be discouraged. We're not competing with him. His human life shows us the power that is work in us if we belong to him. And if we're devoted to God like this, the world's able to see Christ in us. Now as we conclude, there's something I want you to remember. It's very important. Scripture's clear about this. Are you ready? No one has ever seen God. No one. Think about that. Since that is true, then what is the incarnate word proclaiming to us? Let me be more specific. Can we experience God's love? What is the answer? Do you know? Here's how. In our love for one another. Christ in us, as we interact with other people, that's how God's people are known, and that's how God's people make Christ known. John, 1 John 4, chapter 4, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So, what is the incarnate word proclaiming to us? It's good news. 
of great joy that will be for all the people. Because Jesus came, we can know God. Because Jesus came, we can see God's glory. Because Jesus came, God can draw us to himself in order to raise us up. And because Jesus came, God can abide in us and perfect us in our love for him and in our love for one another. So what are you going to think about the next time that you sing Pleased as man with men to dwell? Jesus, our Emmanuel. I hope you think of John 114. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And let's pray. Father, how great it is that you are this kind of God, that you would send your only Son, your unique Son, in the flesh, on a rescue mission to save us. And pray that you would help us to see your glory, that you would draw those to yourself who don't know you, that you draw us closer so that we might be devoted to you and express the kind of devotion that is worthy of salvation. For your glory, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.